Compliance is a profession where people work tirelessly to make the world a better place. And there are hundreds of amazing and inspiring women who have helped the field develop into what it is today. Great Women in Compliance is part of the Compliance Podcast Network. So join Mary Shirley and Lisa Fine as they talk with women in compliance who are making a difference. Welcome to the Great Women in Compliance Podcast with Lisa Fine and Mary Shirley. I'm Mary and today I'm pleased to feature Julie Brignard on the show. Julie has already received a few mentions under her maiden name of Julie Barsha during the life of the GWIC podcast because she's awesome. Tell us about yourself, Julie. Thank you, Mary. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate the maiden name shout out too. I sometimes forget that I changed my name. So that's really helpful for people. It's really an honor and a privilege to be on this podcast. So thank you for everyone listening. This is my first podcast interview. So I'm very excited, a little nervous, but I hope you all learn something or at least enjoy what I have to say. Uh, I started my compliance journey with Mary right out of law school in February of 2018. So just about five years ago. I started as a a generalist in compliance and then slowly moved my way up to being a compliance officer for the medical device business. Recently, just in December, I got a new job and I switched to the legal side of things because I'm also a licensed attorney in the state of Massachusetts. That was a really big move for me, but it was also really important for me to keep the compliance side of the work. So I still have oversight for the compliance program at my new job. It's much smaller companies, so legal and compliance are in one team. So I'm really happy to be getting the legal experience, but also would not have moved if I was going to lose compliance because... Mary has turned me into a compliance lover. And I think I already heard the dogs bark. So I love dogs, but mine can be totally annoying. I'm sorry if you hear a little bark at times. Interestingly, no dogs at this point, but they would not be the first. (laughs) If that was the case, and glad to hear that you're now a compliance aficionado. My brainwashing is clearly working. Congratulations on your new job. Super exciting to see you progress and see that move. I'd love to hear what's something that you found was a good practice for you during the job search that was that made for success that others may not be doing. So one thing I did So I opened up myself on LinkedIn to the open to opportunities function, which I'm sure is a well-known thing for everyone to do. But the second thing I did that maybe not a lot of people do is there were a lot of recruiters and that started reaching out to me. And there were some that would reach out to me for jobs I totally wasn't interested in or thought I was underqualified or overqualified, but I still spoke with them because I said, you know what? Maybe this isn't the right role for me, but maybe there's something I'm missing about the little description and maybe I'll like it. Or maybe this particular job isn't the right fit for me, but now I've developed this relationship with a recruiter and maybe they'll think of me when a different job opens up that might be more in line with my skills. That's what I did. And it's really funny that the way I got my job is honestly, when I applied for it, I thought I might be underqualified. And I think when you look at a job description, there are certain things where I check every single box. This one, that the job I got had some yes, some no. But I think going for it was, it was a reach for me, but I'm so glad I did, obviously, because I got the job. But there was another job I interviewed for where 
I thought I checked every single box. I was like, yes, I might be overqualified for this. And guess what? I got an interview and I was completely ghosted by that place. So don't, I would say through my experience, don't automatically think that you're underqualified for something or overqualified because it turns out I thought I was overqualified and they did not even give me a, an email back. And the job I thought I was underqualified for I got. So don't limit yourself based on what's in the job description or maybe that exact job isn't exactly what you're looking for. Good one. And I think we've had on the podcast quoted before, it's about, I believe, 60%. When men meet 60% of the requirements, they apply and women won't apply unless they meet 100. So Julie, you're actually an outlier there in a very good way. Well done. And I think what I would say is you very may well have been overqualified for the job that you didn't hear back from. We don't know, actually, either way. Right. What we do know totally. is that they have poor ethics. Bye, Felicia. <laughs> okay, I'll just add to that one thing that I've noticed when people are doing posts on LinkedIn that I hadn't done myself, but I think is really intriguing, is tracking your applications and noting down potentially whether you used a certain resume and whether you can start to see trends between how you approach a role, maybe the level of the job that you're going for and where you start to see success points. I think it can be demoralizing if you start seeing stacked up the number of jobs you've applied for against the number of ones where they choose not to shortlist you. But I think it could be an awfully good learning tool to get the data to to help you with your search. It's a great tip. Awesome. Okay. So I want to take us back in time a little bit. So you mentioned that you started working with me very early on in your career. And for me, it's been a bit longer since being fresh out of school, but I do remember it quite well. So I remember that looking for your first role out of law school can be an immensely frustrating and demoralizing experience. And for our listeners who are not lawyers, I do not mean to exclude you in that at all. It's just that I personally have that background. And generally, I would say, and I think this holds true for everybody, is that looking for your first job without experience is very annoying, frankly. It's very frustrating. It's a hard (laughs) slog. And one memory that sticks out in my mind from my first real job search in 2005 was seeing ads in the newspaper. And I have to say that was a key place for looking for jobs back then. Then at the end of the advertisement, a line saying this position is not suitable for new graduates. And this makes me think nowadays, gosh, we should even have a category specifically that is appropriate for new graduates so they can don't have to search through everything and go straight to finding a role that's appropriate for them. Anyway, that's by the by. What do you, Julie, attribute your success to in terms of securing your first big gig? It would be so great if there was a filter for not open to new graduates or if I think back to applying right after school too. And I'm like, wow, I think I probably applied to... 150 to 200 jobs during that period. I was right out of law school. I was waiting for my bar exam. I knew I wanted to be in the healthcare space. I had a concentration in health and biomedical law in law school. And I knew compliance was the field that I was really interested in because I had taken a compliance seminar class. Shout out to Barbara Beeler for opening my eyes to the world of compliance. Uh, So I knew that was definitely an avenue. If I wasn't going to go the legal side, I had the compliance side. And even with that, it took me a pretty long time to find a job. think what attributed to my success, applying to so many jobs is so overwhelming. And it, like you said, it can be so demoralizing, but you just, you have to do it. It's just non-negotiable. You have to do that. And you know what? Another thing I was thinking of the other day, 
someone needs to come up with a method when you're applying for jobs and you attach your resume, and you go to the next page and you have to fill out all the information on your resume. All over that makes it 10 times more demoralizing because <laughs> it just takes 10 times longer. I know. One of the keys to my success was just powering through, not letting myself get down. And you're a new graduate. You might not be the perfect candidate that someone's looking for, but also I think being humble was a big thing for me. So many of the listeners won't know this. When I took the job or before I took the job that you offered me, I had applied to an internship with you as a manager. And obviously coming out of law school and coming out of any school, your dream isn't to be applying for an internship. You no, know, you want to have a full-time job, salary benefits. But I said, you know what? This is the industry I want to be in. It sounds like a great foot in the door to a big, great company. Who cares if the title is intern? Hopefully it'll lead to something else. And I think a lot of people, I think that might be hard for a lot of people to accept. And actually it turns out that I didn't get that role as you went with another great friend of ours. And that's okay. But a couple months later, you sent me an email that we were looking for entry-level full-time positions so I think being humble and knowing that just because something's in turn or just because something might seem below what you think you're worth doesn't mean that's the case. And even if it is the case, I was ready to be an intern. I was ready to prove that I can be a full-time employee and that I can make a difference in this company and I can learn and I, I can be called intern and that's okay. I think letting your pride take a little bit of a backseat with some of the applications was important for that first step out of law school out of it, and applies to any school. That's a great lesson there. And I know that you know this, but the listeners don't. But what you might find interesting, dear listener, is... When I notified Julie that she was not successful in the internship position, because I'm a decent human being, I circled back. Julie <laughs> wrote a very gracious message in response. And some folks chose not to, which is fully within their right to, to do that. But what it meant was, is that Julie stuck out in my mind as being someone that I would want to work with. So even though there were people with comparable backgrounds to her in terms of the education, studying the health law and ethics concentrations, Julie stood out because she was very personable. And it meant that individuals who substantively were largely her equal were passed over immediately. They didn't even get the chance to receive the offer because they had chosen not to respond to the notification and so by being gracious when there's rejection can work in your favor people really do keep you in mind for the future there's a tim mcgraw song called humble and kind always be humble and kind that's my takeaway from this and i'm glad it worked say can you imagine if we didn't know each other Oh, it would be the worst. <laughs> We'd be missing out on so much. <laughs> That's so true. And I will just add, when Julie mentioned that I hired another good friend of ours for the role, I was not friends with the individual first. I didn't know either no. at the beginning. I'm sorry. <laughs> <Don't be silly. laughs> That's a good thing to um, point out. We have become friends. <laughs> exactly. And people can absolutely hire their friends. Just go through the conflict of interest declaration process, please, and <laughs> hire them on their merits. Okay, cool. <laughs> Yes. <laughs> so switching gears a little bit, Julie, one of the things that you are well known for is your volunteer work within the organization.
organization. And I'd love to hear a little bit about what you found benefited you from involving yourself in employee resource groups and putting your hand up for really quite high profile positions very early on. I think a lot of people would not have been bold enough to go for the junior chair position with the Women's Employee Resource Group. Tell us about that experience and what you got from it. Sure. So when I started for Senius, it just felt like such a huge company to me. I was going into this big, beautiful corporate office and we had the little space where the compliance team sat and that was great. But the whole rest of the building just seemed like another world to me. I didn't know anyone over there. I have a very extroverted personality. So part of the reason I wanted to go to the WERG Women Employee Resource Group events was just to meet people. I wanted to get connected, get to know other people in the company. It was, I like putting faces to names. I'd see names in email. I thought, okay, maybe if I go to this event, I'll meet some of the people I've been talking to. Sometimes I think too, when you meet the person you're emailing with, you get a better sense of, you know, how they communicate. Sometimes it's hard in email to tell tone. It's hard to tell personality. So I said, you know what, I want to meet some of these people. And that was really important for me to feel connected. I think in every stage of my life, I've done something to try to connect to other people. In high school, I played a lot of sports. I was a peer minister at Catholic school. In college, I was in a sorority. I played on an intramural basketball team. I've always done something to connect with people. That's just my personality. But I found very quickly that a lot of the work that WORG was doing was really important. They were the first employee resource group at Fresenius, and they were touching on a lot of important women's issues and talking about them. And I thought that alone was big time. Sometimes companies don't let that happen. So not only was it big time for the employees to be talking about it, it was big time the company to allow that to happen and to be listening. I actually got involved as the junior chair I was asked to be the junior chair. I will totally be transparent about that. (laughs) I did accept, though. Mm. necessarily raise my hand, but I (laughs) did accept. And I was very nervous because I said, I just started at this company a couple months ago. I don't even know everybody yet. I'm pretty young. I was like 26 at that point. I had just come off my parents' health insurance. I was like, (laughs) who am I to be leading this powerful group of women? But I think it really helped me develop leadership skills. It helped me gain confidence in public speaking. We did so many events. And honestly, some of the initiatives we tackled, like mentoring program, it did really help with my career because not only did I meet people through the events, but I was able to get mentored from other people in the company that I never would have met. And so many of those people I still talk to today, they're on my reference sheet as references for jobs. And I just thought that was a key part of being a part of a resource group. I love it. I'm so glad that you took the opportunity. As Lisa Estrada said, sometimes you need to go knocking for opportunities. They don't always just present themselves on a plate. But in your case, it did. And you didn't have to take it. You could have gotten scared and run away, but you did. (laughs) And it worked out well. And I would say with a similar experience for me with employee resource groups, really coming across people who you might not ordinarily in the course of the business and then getting to leverage off those relationships for compliance. It's allowing yourself to be seen in a different light as one of the faces of ethics in the organization. 
Um, I know for me, I've been invited to do a presentation from a colleague that I wouldn't normally have had that much interaction with their business. And so it opened a lot of doors, but really some beautiful relationships established. And I think you've had the same that extend beyond core business partners and you make new friends out of it. So for anyone who isn't currently getting involved in an employee resource group, I think I speak on behalf of Julie and myself when I say first, go for it, listen in, and then don't be scared to knock for an opportunity or take one up when it's in front of you on a platter. Definitely. And I would just also add, I think being a part of it in the virtual world is really important too, because with remote working, which I love by the way, but without these opportunities, there's no real socialization opportunity in the remote world. It's just, you go on, you work, you go off. So if you don't join other groups, or if you don't set up time with colleagues to have these social interactions, that's all you're going to get. Very black and white. This is work. I get on, I get off. And that's what some people want. And that's okay. But if you're looking for more, especially virtually, I think it's important. Great point. I love that. Going back to the job search, I just realized I didn't order these very well. Please excuse me, dear listener. <laughs> it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> the war for talents is very strong these days at director level and below in particular. What do you think are realistic ways that companies can attract and retain talent? This is a really good question. And thinking back to my job search, one of the biggest things for me, and I know this isn't big for everyone, but I think it's starting to be, is remote working and at least hybrid. I feel so strongly that corporate support functions do not need to be in person. I used to have, even when I lived only 20 miles away from the office in the suburbs of Boston, it would sometimes take me an hour and a half each way to get to work. That's three hours. I dread being in the car. I'm not getting paid for those three days, uh, three days, three hours. That's right. <laughs> Felt like three days though. So I see a lot of jobs now asking for full back in the office or hybrid. And actually I did apply to one that was hybrid and it was not in Boston. So I couldn't take a train. I was going to have to drive. And I said, you know what, is this something I really want to be doing to myself again? It was not good for my mental health being in the car that long. It really impacted my productivity. I didn't really know until I worked from home and I was like, wow, I have all these hours to get things done. I'm not stressed about working. I'm not stressed about all the things I have to do when I get home. So if any CEOs are listening, give your employees the flexibility to be home, to have flexible hours. We would rather have that flexibility than to have a pizza party in the office. I'm sorry, I can buy my mm. own pizza. I And if mm -hmm. I, like I said earlier, if I want to have social interaction, I will. I can make that happen virtually. And I think it is important for employees to have some engagement. Do, you know, maybe a quarterly meeting where you can get together. I just think that flexibility is so important. And particularly for, I think, in the future about wanting to have kids, like being a working mom, it just gives me such peace of mind to think that I'll have, still hopefully have a flexible job. Another thing to look for, I would say, sorry, I'm saying I'm a lot, <laughs> would, be the, would be benefits. Don't be shy about asking about benefits up front. I think this is a lesson I've learned the hard way. Maybe there's something important to you that a company doesn't have 
particular medical coverage, particular leaves of absences that might you might need in the future, ask about that up front. Because if you start a job and they don't have that, you it's going to change the way you feel about the job, I think. And honestly, there's so many cool benefits that companies offer that I've heard of from my friends that I think when jobs are trying to attract talent, they should be upfront with those benefits. Oh, we get discounts on cars or you get this sort of We'll pay for your internet allowance up to a certain amount. Those are cool benefits that people pay attention to, especially when it affects their wallet. I think jobs should really advertise that more. Great point there. Thank you, Julie. You may be surprised to know that the time has absolutely flown by in your first podcast, and we are already oh my at goodness. the very last question. Oh, Yeah. Awesome work. So Thank you. Uh, you and I had a lot of fun, in, including with other colleagues as well, designing and rolling out compliance weeks. What are some things that you think make for a successful compliance week? You remember when we ran through the op- blow up obstacle course in 2018? Yes. Yes, I think <laughs> that I was, was really fun. The entire time. <laughs> I love it. So I think it, compliance week is so important, but I think the work leading up to Compliance Week is just as, if not more important, building relationships with your business to get them to buy in is so crucial. And I think something that worked for me once I started supporting a function that had a sales team was to leverage the competitiveness of teams, in particular for sales that worked. So when I said, look, we have all these great events, you'll learn about compliance. And you know what, there might be a prize at the end or you might go against your counterpart in the other sales team. They were like, oh, what do we have to do? We can't lose to them. We want to be better. What do we have to show up at? I got excited because of their competitive nature to show up to those events. I think what has been also really helpful and also brings a lot of fun to it is having a theme. I mentioned the blow up obstacle course. That was a lovely in-person carnival we had the next year the rodeo, barbecue, and I think having a theme and showing that compliance can be fun and approachable is really helpful. There were a lot of people I spoke to after that week that said, I didn't know compliance was so fun, or I didn't know that we could just call you whenever we needed something. And I was like, clearly, you don't know me very well. (laughs) Second of all, you don't know compliance that well, but you clearly don't know me that well. You can call me whenever. And I think also doing some touch points throughout the year leading up to compliance, having some sort of communication initiated. People are thinking about compliance in the back of their mind. So it's not just, oh, what is this? Who's doing that? So they know your name. They know I started this new thing at my new company. It's just on the internet and it's not fully developed yet. For all the listeners, I've only been there two months, but it's compliance culture corner. Yes. Nice alliteration. And That's just my way of trying to put compliance in the forefront of the company, getting people to see my name, to know what we're talking about. And so when the big event comes, they already know who you are. They want to be there. They want to support what you're doing. So I think the months leading up to Compliance Week are really important. And then just having a fun, approachable event, whether it's virtual or in person. I love that tip about dropping little compliance week nuggets throughout the year and not just making it that one off. And something that comes to mind for me as you say that is I've previously spoken about this on the podcast and in other avenues where 
you can use the compliance week as a gap analysis opportunity in the quizzes and things like that to find out what where people's knowledge levels are at for substantive compliance issues. And so when you release a particular communications campaign or a training that might hit on something that you learned was a gap in the compliance week, you can mention at the outset of the training, you told us X, Y, Z, this is how we acted on it. And so you're circling back on feedback so the colleagues know that when you when they share something with you, you're actually gonna act on it. And that helps to promote speak up in a broader context. Definitely. I love that. Awesome. Julie, well done. Your first podcast is complete. Thank you, Mary. Thank you, listener. We invite Lisa and I, all of you, to join us again next week for our next episode. Feel free to take a look at Corporate Compliance Insights website, which is our sponsor. Thank you very much to Sarah Haddon, the owner of that organization, and your generosity to us. And check out our landing page there for more information. Thank you so much, Julie. Take good care. Thanks for marrying you too. Bye. Thanks for joining us for this episode of Great Women in Compliance. We hope you'll join us in honoring the great women in the compliance field by subscribing to this podcast and leaving a review.